Welcome to Driving Ahead, NADA's podcast about trends shaping the future of the automotive world. Now, here's your host, Jonathan Colleggio. Hey guys, welcome to NADA's podcast, Driving Ahead. I'm Jonathan Colleggio, and today we're super excited to have our special guest, Michael Dunn. He is CEO of Dunn Insights and an expert on China and specifically China's plans for the automotive industry. He's also host of the podcast, Driving with Dunn. Michael, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. Now at NADA, we heard a presentation from you a couple of months ago, and uh, you know, I basically begged you afterward to come to our podcast because what you told us about was so jaw-droppingly interesting that we, we just knew that we had to bring you on uh, to kind of tell this story to the, to the broader industry. So paint for us a picture of what's going on in China. Are they basically gearing up to dominate the entire global automotive industry? <laughs> yes, it definitely looks that way. I think of China as sort of the modern Godzilla. It's got scale, it's got manufacturing capacity, it has the products, it has the prices, it builds both EVs and ICE vehicles. This year, China surpassed Japan to become the largest exporter of vehicles worldwide, and it looks like they're just getting going. Now, what makes this really interesting for people here in the United States is we don't see Chinese cars on our roads, at least not yet. So there's a mistake out there. There's a perception, hey, China's far away and kind. Do they even make cars? No, absolutely they do. And people in the U.S. should get ready for both the risks and the opportunities that are coming. Places like Australia, Thailand, U.K., Europe, South America, Mexico, they're all seeing huge numbers of Chinese cars pour into their markets, especially since 2020. Just a little bit of context here. Up until 2020, China was not a major exporter of cars. But the domestic market is slowing because the economy is weaker. And automakers there have repositioned themselves and saying, the future is exports. And so we've seen exports in China jump from a million in 2020 to 5 million this year. Who knows? They could go to 7, 8 million in the next couple of years. From zero? From basically, they weren't shipping many cars at all, like 5% of their total production until 2020. It's just taken off. One of the things you you always hear, you know, you go to the automotive conferences and you talk, oh, you know, General Motors, it sells more cars in China than it does in the United States. Is that still true? Because it, McKinsey had a report out last June where they said that the international brands of China, so the American brands, Germans, the uh, Europeans, are no longer commanding a premium there. Not only aren't they commanding a premium, but their sales have fallen off a cliff. Ford, GM, Volkswagen, Hyundai are really in the hurt locker in China these days. Sales are down from their peak by 40, 50, even 60%. The profit machine that was once China is no longer. We saw Jeep leave the market. We saw Mitsubishi recently decide to leave the market. And I was talking to my good friend, Klaus Meyer, just came back from China yesterday. And he said this, he said, Mike, if you're not a premium uh, luxury in Mercedes, Audi, or BMW in China, within five years, you'll be exiting the place because the Chinese have gotten that much better, lower cost, higher quality, and ambitious. So <laughs> global automakers' golden days in China are essentially over. So he's saying that mainstream brands won't exist in the, the mainstream brands that we think of, Chevy, Ford, Toyota, like those won't be sold in China in five years. It's just going to be high-line luxury? That's right. The, the, you'll have Chinese brands like BYD, SAIC, Geely, Polestar, Volvo, which is owned by the Chinese and others, now capturing more than half the market. 
And yes, those other global brands, especially mass market brands, are finding themselves not competitive anymore. There's also a nationalistic uh, sentiment here in play. Xi Jinping is sort of encouraging Chinese consumers, buy Chinese, they're great cars, good for our country. The combination of better cars, nationalism, lower costs, and the Chinese consumers I know are just flocking to the Chinese brands at the expense of the global automakers. So you mentioned BYD, and you know this is a company that wasn't even, you know, they, they weren't even manufacturing complete cars 15, 20 years ago. And suddenly I was, I was reading that they, well, I think they produced 2.7 million EVs last year. Tesla produces 3 million. So they're basically at, what is that, 80, 90% capacity of, of Tesla. So are they going to, are they going to overtake Tesla as the, as the number one global EV brand? Now, BYD technicality, they count both BEVs and PHEVs in their total. But nonetheless, they're going to surpass 3 million units this year. They'll be at 5 billion by 2025, bigger than GM, bigger than Ford, bigger than Nissan. So BYD, because it makes the cars and its own batteries, is a formidable force in the auto industry now and into the future. There was one crazy statistic that I heard about Mexico. Is BYD like the third or the, or the second biggest selling brand in the country in the last quarter or something like that? Yeah, BYD is taking Mexico by storm. The chairman recently visited there to look at two separate sites for a manufacturing facility in the future. How many people are aware that the number one supplier of vehicles to the Mexican market is China, is already China. If you add up the Chinese brands, plus get this, Jonathan, GM is now exporting Chevys from China to Mexico. So when you total up the global brands being exported from China, plus the Chinese brands, Chinese brands are already number one in Mexico. Who, what? What's going on? So I mean, but it had to have happened in like in the last year. Because I guess well, maybe if you were taking the Chinese Chevy being reimported, how much of that are the GM cars and what we think of as like the American nameplates with Chinese parts versus Chinese brands like BYD and Cherry and the others going in? There's a lot of both, but basically it's two thirds Chinese brands and one third global joint ventures trying to find, you remember, these global joint ventures are struggling inside China, looking for, oh, we're sitting on this capacity that we've invested in for the past 20 years. What do we do with it? And operationally, oh, let's ship it overseas, find markets. And that's what's going on. Now, that's a little bit short-sighted by the American automakers, because if you think about it, those joint ventures are 50-50 partnerships with the Chinese. Every time you ship a Chevy from China to Mexico, half the revenue and profits goes to your Chinese partner. So you mentioned production capacity. Where does it stand in the United, in the in China relative to the United States? It's like, here comes that Godzilla again. China has the capacity to supply half of the world's demand for vehicles now, right around 45 million. And that, that's a mixture of ICE and EVs. And so sometimes when you think about it, Jonathan, like if you're a, an alien comes down to earth and said, where should I manufacture cars? There's no other choice but China. You have their supply chains. You have low cost, much improved quality. Don't underestimate the quality the Chinese now deliver. The designs are terrific. They have over 200 Western designers, first-class designers now living and working in China with the automakers. So you look around and you say, how do we match this? How do we compete with this juggernaut coming out of China? 
So I, I've seen the designs that the designs are, are absolutely comparable to what we would expect here in the United States. You mentioned quality. So you're saying that you take a Hyundai EV6, you know, like a, a you know, a, a, a four, you know, basically a four person car and compare that to a, to a BYD, whatever, whatever its comp is. And you're saying that the quality is about the same? Absolutely. When it comes to the electric vehicle, the battery, the powertrain, the vehicle itself, just a few weeks ago, I, I visited BYD and test drove their newest vehicles along with a people from a major dealership group here in the United States. And that dealer happens to sell a lot of Hyundai. And they got out of the cars and they said, my goodness, this is just like the current Hyundais. They couldn't believe their eyes. And they said, I will sell a ton of these if I can get my hands on them. So that was an eye opener for me. This is people steeped in the business for decades and familiar with Toyotas and Hyundais and said, BYD is right there. Now, let's pause there for a minute. It's all happened so quickly, Jonathan, in a few space or a few years. I still want to look at long-term reliability. But in terms of design, fit and finish materials, very impressive from BYD today. So they have a capacity for 45 million vehicles. That's half of the world's new vehicle sales in, a, in, a, you know, in an average year. Uh, there was a New York Times article a few months ago about how there was actually a shortage of ships to take these vehicles to the global markets um, and that the demand crunch had, like, had, had quintupled the cost of moving the product to Australia or overseas, basically. Is that a constraint that they can deal with or are they just going to basically pivot and then move all their production into shipbuilding this way they can build the shipping capacity? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that seems to be the only bottleneck these days for the Chinese is the shipping Several, including BYD and SAIC and Cherry, have begun to buy their own ships. So one way to eliminate that bottleneck is, well, let's just own that business too. Why not? We're vertically integrating everything else. We might as well extend it to shipping. So they have shipments going all over the world, including to Europe, Africa, South America. And they're learning. There are mistakes along the way. For example, because they're not that familiar with shipping and they're running their own ships today, some cars are arriving with scratches and nicks and dents here and there. <laughs> so I asked dealers in Europe, well, what do you do about that? And they said, so far the Chinese say, don't worry about it, we'll just send you a new one. So they, they have so much ready capacity that they just, it's a machine coming at us. And again, Americans, you know, we say, my friends, hey, what do you think about Chinese cars? And they get a puzzled look on their face because we don't see them here, Jonathan, but don't make that mistake, they're coming from an international standpoint, they've had this issue where the EU is now studying whether China is dumping these vehicles. They're basically trying to look into the cost to see whether or not they're dumping them below cost into the European market. What do you think is going to happen there? Uh, I think we're everyone in the industry is watching this very closely. You're exactly right. They have an anti-subsidy probe. That means we suspect the Chinese of dumping vehicles at below cost. Now, the hard part is how do you measure cost in China? a highly opaque society industry. They'll show you the numbers you wanna see when you go to visit them and do an audit. But think about it, you have the entire state apparatus and the party, provincial, city governments, banks, everyone aligned to make sure this is a resounding success. So when you start to think about how do we unpack that and find out whether or not they're dumping, the odds are that they're not gonna find a smoking gun. They're gonna walk away and say, gosh, China's super competitive. It, it's like the solar panel industry that completely wiped out Europe before. Here we go again with cars. 
So if you were an analyst and you were trying to look into these books, I, I assume the accounting rules are the same in China as they are anywhere else, but I guess, I guess the devil is in the details. Somebody had to create the production capacity, probably didn't come from private capital, probably came from public equity, probably came from the, you know, the Chinese government, the Communist Party. You, you mentioned transparency. Is it even possible to like do a forensic audit and to objectively figure this out? My 25 years in China tell me that it's a fool's errand to visit China and try to find out what the real numbers are. You can literally go to a local government office and say, what were your GDP statistics in the last quarter? And they'll say, which drawer do you want me to pull them from? Because I can give you the one that the central government wants to see. They're way ahead of us in terms of that complexity and hiding. I don't even think they think of it as hiding. They just think of it as managing uh, a reality to their benefit. So no, it, it would be an impossible thing to actually know costs of a vehicle in China today. So there is a cost advantage that they have against a US or a, or a European manufacturer on an EV. It's like with 10,000 bucks, what's the cost advantage that they have? On average today on EVs shipping into Europe, they have about a 30% cost advantage and that translates into prices. Just learned the other day talking to people at Volkswagen, their Volkswagen ID, which sells both in China and Europe, is 30% cheaper in China because it's hyper-competitive in the whole market. And then they have this excess capacity, they ship it to Europe and it's priced that much higher. So you've got the same product built in the same place, but at a much lower price in China. What does that tell us? That tells us that the Chinese have a lot of margin to play with when they go overseas. So the market clearing price because of all the competition in China is 30% lower. That's right. China's in the midst of a massive price war, which was ignited by Tesla about a year ago. And if you look at it, my Chinese friends tell me there's no money to be made at home. That's why we're pushing so aggressively into export markets. Either they're breaking even or they're losing money as EV makers. And they're saying, well, that's how we compete as China. We go scale, we go massive capacity, and we hang on and hope the others bail first. And that we've already seen several global automakers retreating. So, so far, the Chinese say, hey, this is working. It's painful for a short term. But guess what? We're gobbling up markets overseas. So what is the cost advantage based on? I mean, when, when you know, Toyota, when they came to the United States, they had all kinds of different processes. Their labor costs were much lower than General Motors and Ford because they didn't have the union contracts. They were, uh, they were just more efficient, just in time. What is the actual price advantage that the Chinese have? One of the big themes that come out of China today is BYD is a perfect example of it is vertical integration. So in BYD's case, they own not only all of the vehicle manufacturing, but also all the batteries that feed into those vehicles and the cell manufacturing and the mineral processing and even have interest in the mines themselves. So as with Tesla, BYD has gone seriously into vertical integration that allows them to control costs and drive down costs because it's internally controlled. So that's one. Labor is much cheaper probably less than half of what we have, especially with the recent agreements with the UAW, less than half of what an American worker would make. So they, they save on labor. But keep in mind, there's other creative ways for China to gain cost advantages. For example, their factories might be supplied with energy at di deep discounts by the local government. Hey, we'll power your factory for free for a few months this year. Or they may get rebates, tax rebates on anything they ship overseas. There's subsidies at the local level for buyers and for manufacturers. The other thing to keep in mind is the Chinese love to compete on cost. They'll say, 
if we can compete on cost and drive people out, we'll have longer staying power and we'll be able to sustain it. Later on, when those guys leave, we can raise prices and get our margins back. So they have this huge capacity. They're not making money at home because it's hyper-competitive. They're taking the capacity, they're putting on ships, and they're exporting it. They're not exporting the United States yet. Who is importing these vehicles today? So Mexico, right on our doorstep, is a big importer of Chinese vehicles. In fact, China last year became the number one supplier of vehicles to the Mexican market. Let me repeat that. The number one supplier into Mexico of vehicles is China. That's a combination of Chinese brands like BYD and Cherry and Great Wall and SAIC. Plus, get this, GM's joint ventures in China because the domestic market has not one. Because the domestic market is not working out for GM, they're now taking that capacity and shipping it to Mexico too. So they're coming heavy into Mexico. Next year, look for them to go into Canada. What they like there is that unlike the United States, tariff rates on imported cars from China are quite low in Canada and Mexico. Here in the United States, we have a 27.5% duty on Chinese cars. That's one of the sort of walls that's holding back the Chinese, at least so far. So the two NAFTA countries, I assume, what, Brazil, and then also kind of kind of the, the, the countries in their uh, sphere of interest. So, you know, Indonesia, Philippines, Thailand. Is India importing these vehicles? India would be one of those that, okay, so we can almost name the countries that aren't importing many Chinese vehicles. India has a historic rivalry with China, as does Japan, as does arguably Korea. So those are three markets in Asia that are not so welcoming of China, to Chinese cars. But Indonesia is, I was just came back from there. We're seeing Chinese cars there for the first time. Thailand, Chinese makers have captured 10% of the overall market and dominate the EV market there. Uh, Philippines, even into Vietnam. If you w go across the world, Africa, South America, Brazil, Europe, UK will import more than 100,000 MGs that are now built in China this year. So Europe's the big push for electric vehicles. And then for ice-powered vehicles, that's developing markets. Um, South America, Southeast Asia, Africa, Middle East. So you mentioned tariffs. There's 27.5% import duty on Chinese cars. That was from the Trump administration. What's going to happen there? I mean, it, is that going to be sufficient to keep those vehicles from coming in? Because even if they have a 30, was a 35% cost advantage, um, and it sounds like these are entry-level vehicles. I was talking to John Murphy on the podcast, and he was talking about how we're basically kind of hitting this point in the United States where the entry-level vehicle is kind of going away because the the quality and quantity of pre-owned vehicles with bells and whistles are basically competing them out. And uh, you know, a, a, a five-year-old Honda Accord with with all the options could serve a, an entry-level consumer better than a new Honda Civic with you know with no options. So if they're competing at at an extremely low price point, especially for an EV, that you know, would the tariff by itself be enough? to keep them out? Or do you believe that they have aims to, to crack the market anyway? They have aims to crack the market anyway. There's no secret there. It's just a question of timing. And they look at the tariff rate as it stands today, 27.5%, and they shrug and say, that's no big deal for us. So if you think about it, if their cost basis is $20,000, it bumps up to $25,000, $26,000, they're, they're, they're still in a sweet position. What other companies are offering products at those price points? So 
The tariff as it stands today isn't a deterrent. The bigger issue they're concerned about is, and it's interesting to hear this, the Chinese companies that I know are very concerned about litigation in the United States and politics. Two things that they can more or less control at home or get aligned with. As they step into the US market, they look and say, where's our friends? What if things go wrong? Who can we count on here? And they feel very, very sort of out of their element when they're stepping into the US market. They respect it for a huge, it's huge opportunity, but they're wary of the dangers of things related to regulations, litigation, and government policy. So that's where they stand. And if the US-China relationship, for some reason, was to vastly improve from where it is today, because it's the worst it's been in 40 years, if it were to improve, we'd see Chinese cars coming in, for sure. It's that they're, they're at the gate, hesitating, looking in, checking, waiting for the right moment. So I guess that they saw what happened to Huawei and in phones and then in TikTok and, you know, in social media. And if you're steely eyed, I, you, you, would, you could see this happening to a company like BYD or SAIC as well. Absolutely. So look for them instead. We talked about Mexico before to sort of do a side door, back door, southern door approach. Let's set up our base camp in more friendly Mexico, manufacture at still low cost capture the Mexican market and at the right time, sort of quietly let our cars flow into the US market from the, from the South. That, that's the strategy they're looking at today. I suppose another way to do it would be to acquire a brand that's, you know, that already exists. Is there talk about that? Like, I'm, I'm, I don't know, I'm thinking like a smaller manufacturer, Mazda, uh, you know, is there Mitsubishi, like, would, would, is, is that in the cards where they would go in and you know, where Americans are familiar with one brand, suddenly, you know, it creeps from being 25% owned by, by a Chinese company to 60% owned by a Chinese company. And then before you know it, this company that you think of as a, as a Japanese manufacturer or a French manufacturer is suddenly a Chinese manufacturer. Absolutely. You know, there's already precedent for it in the form of Volvo, which Geely bought back in 2010 and is doing very well today. And as it sells in Europe and here in the United States, I think very few people are aware that it's a Chinese owned brand. Uh, also, SAIC has had equal success with the MG brand, which is a British iconic brand that they bought back, gosh, in 2005. So what would be that U.S. brand? Possibly Buick. Today, China's market accounts for 80% of Buick's global sales. And so in a sense, most of the Buicks built in the world are already built in China. It's not too far out of it's not too crazy to think about a possibility one day that SEIC says, hey, let's just make this real. You know, we'll just take this thing off your hands because it's not doing great at home there in America. We'll try to help fix it. Why not? It was interesting during the bankruptcies, GM downsized. It got rid of uh, Pontiac. Hummer was a brand that went away. Buick was kept because they were able to convince the commission that was looking at the bankruptcies that they needed Buick to be able to compete in the growing Chinese market. So is it one of the brands that is like, so like Buick was a luxury brand before Mao, right? So it, it had this mystique that it was like this, this awesome American brand. And does it still have that, that status in, in China or is it declining like all of the others? Sadly, it no longer enjoys that, that exclusivity, that image of something a cut above. That was definitely true when it was launched in the early late 90s, early 2000s in China, Buick was 
the best of the best at the time because China controlled what brands could come in. And so Buick had a great run through the 2000s and into the early 2010s. But in recent years, sales are off 40, 50%. And the best selling Buick, sadly, is now the entry level Buick that, that, that they call the XL that impresses no one. So if you ask a Chinese consumer today, Buick, they'd shrug their shoulders and say, used to be great. Now I'll buy a Chinese brand instead today. So John Murphy, the Bank of America auto analyst, he said that, you know, he, he looks at not only the the first order consequences of, of the industry, the sales, the sales figures, the SAR, but then also the second and third order consequences within the larger economy. And no no industry is more important to most domestic economies than the automotive industry if it exists because it drives energy, it drives manufacturing, tires, glass, steel, all these different components. Then there's a, you know, there's a $400 billion service market in the United States, maintenance, it threads throughout the entire economy. So is that is that why China is prioritizing this so much? Do they want this for China, or is it simply an economic question? Is it is it more of a more of an influence question? What's driving all this? economics, jobs, power, all of the above? Uh, go back to 2014, very important date. Xi Jinping, the leader, convenes his top lieutenants to a summer resort and says. Forever, we've been trailing in technology. We've been playing catch up on internal combustion engines. We're the biggest market in the world. We build more cars than anyone else. But guess what? The global brands still dominate. This is 10 years ago. Yeah. And then he said, the way to change things is for us to pivot to EVs, battery powered vehicles, change the game, change the terms of competition. And that's exactly what's played out. And China sees this. And Xi Jinping sees the auto industry as a major locomotive of growth, jobs, and wealth and power globally at a time when China's economy has been struggling. So he's saying, what are the horses I want to bet on going forward? One of them is definitely electric vehicles exporting globally, dominating global markets. So 10 years ago, China was viewed as just kind of unstoppable. I remember I had a, I had a friend from South America, a businessman, entrepreneur. He had spent some time in Shanghai and he came back and he told me, Jonathan, China is going to take over the world. They're growing so quickly. The United States can't compete. He was wrong, by the way. You know, the, we, we have outcompeted them in technology and in biomedical and all the, all the really, really forward uh, leaning technologies. But part of that also was this shift about seven or eight years ago. I remember there was this big shift with Ant Financial. And Alibaba and you know Jack Ma disappeared. It was almost like suddenly the markets that they were encouraging to flourish, they kind of pulled back a little bit and said, "No, I'm sorry, Alibaba. We need to be focused on the whole more than your part. We're going to rein you in a little bit." It's almost like they 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 slowed everything down purposefully to set the balance back toward the government instead of toward these companies. Is that continuing to happen? Do you expect that to continue or? Because it seems like long term, that's going to have a major inhibition on growth. If they're allowing the markets to flourish, that's one thing. But it just takes a couple of bad government bets that aren't based on the market for you know a lot of the cards to come crashing down. What do you think? Yeah, there's a major conflict brewing. On the one hand, just as you described, within China, they're moving away from financial services and internet, things like Alibaba and Tencent, and in favor of the role playbook, let's manufacture leading technologies like EVs and batteries and export and export and export and be mercantilist about it. That's what worked early for China and they're going back to that in the future. Now, here's the catch. 
they need U.S. and European markets to make that work for profitability. And that's the leverage that the U.S. and Europe still have today. Hey, what if we don't let you have access to our markets? What are you going to do? You're going to drown in your own overcapacity. So there's this like immovable object and the unstoppable force meets the potentially immovable object. But China's, just as you described, betting heavily on leading in next generation technologies, both for at home, but more importantly, for the first time, we see them pushing out with global ambitions to dominate set standards for and supply most countries in the world. How is that going to play out? Can they have their cake and eat it too? At a time when Western companies are enjoying less and less access to the China market, or they're not relevant to the China market. So China goes, China market, we control that. And global markets, we'd like to control those too. This is going to be causing some friction for sure and conflict. We don't know exactly how it's going to play out. So it's a, it's a huge bet. There's massive upside controlling the global supply chain. It's exports that strengthens your currency. It's all of those good things. The flip side of it is that if it doesn't work, they drown in their overcapacity and it could spark basically a depression from having a bunch of vehicles and technologies and investments uh, that basically you know didn't make any returns. That's the bet that, that they're making. It's, it's a bet that only like a central planner could make, right? Yes, and Xi Jinping doesn't hide the fact that he said, it's China's turn to take center stage. We're number one in so many markets, in so many industries. It's only a matter that the rest of the world didn't wake up to the new realities yet. We're number one, and we're not looking to any other countries for leadership. We're the ones. If you game this out and they decide to try to enter the U.S. market, things calm down a little bit. They try to enter the U.S. market over the 27% tariff. By the way, I, I believe that the, the U.S. trade rep has the discretion to raise that if they, if they, I believe that that's how that, that was written. But if they come into the United States, one of the challenges is that the U.S. market, as far as the SAR is concerned, is not really a, a growing market anymore. It's a, it's, a, it's a mature market. You could see growth in terms of price levels. You know, the sticker price goes up. But in terms of the number of sales we're not going to see 10% growth year over year over year. That's just not in the card. The vehicles work too well. There's no demand for 21 million you know, new vehicles year over year. There's just not enough people. And, and the used cars are so good that they could just kind of be fixed up. So if they moved into the market, game that out, like what would that look like? Who would they displace? How would you see that kind of unfolding? Well, first off, just as you mentioned, they look at the weaker, more vulnerable players. For example, yes, Volkswagen, Mazda, Nissan, Ford, GM. They see vulnerabilities. They see a lot of high-cost operations, with including the labor, that's, that are not easy to change. So they're not worried about a growing market. They're interested in getting part of this profitable market. A lot of people talk about GM in China and how well it's done. That was true 10, 15 years ago, but today China contributes less than 10% of GM's global profits. Most of what GM makes right here in the United States, same thing for Ford. So the Chinese see those profit margins and say, my goodness, we want part of that too, because we're not getting it at home. And they feel confident that they can compete with the mid-sized players for sure. And even with Detroit, Detroit should be genuinely concerned about the challenge coming out of China. So let, let's take a step back. You came up in the, in the U.S. automotive industry. You ran General Motors in Indonesia. Is that right? Yes. Is that what sparked your interest in China? Like, how did you get to the knowledge point that you are today with Dun Insights? 
Wow, that goes way back to um, school days at Michigan. So I first went to China in 1986 when they had just started building cars. They were building the Beijing Jeep and the Volkswagen Santana. Most people were on bikes. Average incomes were like 300 bucks a year. I had an ambition to set up shop in China, thinking maybe one day there'll be a car market here and I can help to assist automakers step in. Uh, because the language is different, the culture and the food and everything's so different there. I'll be their man on the ground. So when I first arrived in 1990, started my first company there, the people around me said, have you lost your mind? There's no car market here. The few cars that are built are sold to government officials. There's no private buyer. This, there's no money here. This is a black hole. But I stuck around. I don't know why, but gradually you start to see the economy t take shape. And that one thing led to another. And all of a sudden there's investment and there's wealth and there's ex exports of other components, people making money, buying cars, and, and the rest is history. It went from nothing to, by 2010, the largest producer and buyer of cars in the world. Just a spectacular growth. Phenomenal to be part of it. Built up my own company, then sold it to JD Power, ran JD Power's operations several years in China. It was during that time that I really got to know these Chinese automakers upfront and personal, including their leadership. And so they've been determined from the early days to be global. Now is their time to shine. So from your perspective, one of the things people are talking about is, is the, the new bifurcation of the world. China, Russia kind of have their orbit on one side, United States, European Union on the other. Is that real? Do you see that happening in your travels? To, you said you're in Indonesia recently. Is that what's happening? Are those countries then also going to start shutting off access to their markets for U.S. goods and services? The Chinese are moving. Let's talk about their doorstep, Southeast Asia, 600 million people. That's your Vietnam, Thailand, Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Myanmar. 600 million people, rising incomes. The Chinese are moving very aggressively in there to say that is our sphere of interest. And unfortunately, GM and Chrysler have already left those markets, except for, say, Ford is still in Thailand. But by and large, the U.S. has retreated from Southeast Asia. The Chinese are moving in. So look, Africa's similar story. So look for this geopolitical conflict to play out in different regions around the world. And if you look at today, Southeast Asia, the Chinese definitely have the momentum. So imagine that you and I are here on this podcast five years from now. And we should do it again, by the way. This is, this is amazing. What will we be talking about in five years? Where do you see this going? Ultimately, for dealers here in the United States, I think it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So let's say, for example, one way or another, the Chinese are going to find their way into this market. When people often ask me, who's the next Hyundai in the world? And it's going to come out of China, and there's probably five of them ready to do so now. So if I'm a dealer in the U.S., I'm looking at, like, I hope things calm down. I hope the U.S. and China can get along because I see huge opportunity to sign up with these new, new brands that are already successful in so many other markets around the world. That's the next play. So that would be one thing we're talking about. On the other hand, if the U.S. and China don't find a way to get along, then we're going to see a world that is increasingly split into. You mentioned the political risk to China entering the market. I mean, I can almost see kind of this right-left alliance to raise the tariff. The unions, UAW clearly wouldn't want entry of, of, of China to the market. 
there's the America first crowd that that wouldn't want to cede U.S. exports to to China. So that political risk question is is very is very real, I think. And the other piece of it is that, you know, if China does come into the U.S. market, it's great for anyone who's associated with that. But for all the people who are competing with it, that's a very, very difficult situation to be in if you're a Subaru or a Mazda or a Volkswagen or, you know, again, one of those one of those midsize manufacturer retailers, Ford even, because again, because it's not a growing market, because it's a mature market, anyone's gain is really going to come out at somebody else's expense. That's right. If you look at some, a couple of significant investments recently, Volkswagen made a $700 million investment in a Chinese EV startup called Xpeng. That was earlier this year. Then Stellantis, $1.5 billion investment in a small EV maker out of China called Leap Motor. In a sense, and Nissan last week announced that it's going to source EVs for global markets from its China partner. In a sense, there's already a, a capitulation on that front. Like, whoa, when it comes to EVs, we're not capable. We have to either invest in or buy or partner with. And that's alarming when you think about it. You mentioned Nissan. There's all of these supply, you know, they're not going to be able to compete on the components. The supply chain for batteries is is a is a super hot topic. You know, the Biden administration and the Inflation Reduction Act had some, you know, they they, they don't want China to control the supply chain. It don't it almost seems that despite whatever they do, it's pushing string. Is it possible to wrest control of that battery supply chain from the control that China has over it? <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Up and down, they've been working at this, keep in mind, for more than 10 years. Strategic and tactical acquisitions of the mines. They do most of the processing of the battery materials. That's your graphite and your lithium. They manufacture most of the cells. They have the largest capacity, two biggest battery makers in the world are Chinese. It's like if you put do an analogy, it's like I remember when Ford and GM showed up in China in the early 1990s. They knew how to make internal combustion engines and all the subcomponents that went into those. And the Chinese looked at that and said, my goodness, we'll never get there. You guys can control the entire supply chain for engines and you're innovating on the technology every month. How can we ever possibly catch up? And they never did. And that's the reason why they pivoted to electrics. Now the shoe's on the other foot and the U.S. is looking and saying, okay, how in the world can we catch up in batteries and battery supply chains? It's a 10-year effort, good first steps. There's $78 billion being invested now so far in the battery belt in the United States. So we're taking those first important steps, but we can't have any illusions. It's going to be a 10-year commitment to try to get to the level where China is today. That's just reality. Michael, just tell us, how do you communicate with folks? I know that you have your very robust LinkedIn profile. You have the podcast, uh, Driving with Don. Tell, tell us how people can learn more about what you do and uh, and the research that you put up. Tremendous, yes. Dunn Insights is a, an advisory company that works with Western companies to either take advantage of market opportunities in Asia or understand the threats and opportunities coming out of Asia to us. Uh, you can find us at www.doneinsights.com or listen to our podcast, Driving with Done. That's a weekly podcast with leaders in the electric vehicle industry globally. That's how to find us. And the time has never been better for people, especially in America, to wake up to the new realities that China presents us with. We love to compete. We can compete. But the first order of business is to have awareness. Whoa, there's a new kid on the block and he ain't small. It's real. 
Finally, a question that we ask all of our guests. What was your first ride? Do you have a favorite car today? Oh, favorite car today. So for, that's an impossible question. <laughs> Especially for a car guy. Yeah. <laughs> so, right? So first car was a, B, a used BMW. I just like to drive fast. And then um, my car today is a Model S. I really like it. I wouldn't change it for anything. Excellent. Well, thank you, Michael Dunn, for uh, joining Driving Ahead. So excited to have you here. For those of you who are listening, thank you so much for joining. Drop us a like, share the podcast with folks you know. From uh, Jonathan Collegio and NADA's Driving Ahead, thank you very much for joining, and we'll see you on the road. Thank you. This podcast was produced in partnership with Amaze Media Labs.